This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris. Welcome to Heard It on the Sidelines. Heard It. Heard It on the Sidelines with Shotgun Spratly. Spratly. Welcome back to the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast, part of the Peristyle podcast family of shows. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratly. Well, the USC basketball team is heading back to the NCAA tournament for the fourth time in the last six seasons that there's been a tournament. Obviously, there was 2020 where USC would have been in the tournament if it had been played, thanks a lot, COVID. Well, the Trojans were given a seven seed this year and a first-round matchup with Miami down in Greenville, South Carolina, where we'll be heading on Friday to cover and cover the game in person. So we're diving into the Trojans' first-round matchup with the Hurricanes, looking at the potential of Andy Enfield's squad to make some more March Madness noise a second year in a row after an Elite Eight run last season. We've got a special guest as USC Associate Head Coach Chris Capco is going to join us to talk about how the Trojans match up against Miami, what they've been doing to get their defensive numbers and turnovers back in line with where they were early in the season when USC was playing really well, and see what gives this team confidence it can go on another run starting in South Carolina. Capco also provides an update on injured guards Isaiah White and Reese Dixon Waters and discusses how life's been a little bit different this year for him as an associate head coach for the first time and as a first-time father. Later in the episode, we'll dive into the keys of the matchup with the Hurricanes and look at what the Trojans have to do to be successful on Friday when they play at 310 local time in the East, East Coast, 1210 Pacific time. Game's going to be on True TV. If you can't get it on True TV, you don't have True TV, you can't get to a bar, you're stuck at work, follow along. Follow up me on Twitter at SPR. I'll be at the game. I'll be get, providing you guys updates. But for any first-time listeners, the Heard It on the Sidelines podcast, hosted by yours truly, Shotgun Spiraling, is an attempt to take you a little bit behind the curtain. You know, pull back the curtain a little bit, give you a behind-the-scenes feel as we interview people around USC sports, including players and coaches. <laughs> another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We now welcome in one of the key pieces to USC's potential NCAA tournament runs, associate head coach Chris Capco. Cap, I know you got a busy schedule right now as you prepare for your first round matchup with Miami. So thanks for taking the time to join us. No problem, Shotgun. Happy to be here. Well, obviously, you guys are in Greenville, South Carolina. You've already made the, the trek across country. How do you feel like the team has, has evolved from where you guys were at the, at the end of the regular season, finishing up there, going to the conference tournament, now being in Greenville? How do you reset and go forward in the NCAA tournament? You know, we um, I don't know if too many teams into the 
conference schedule harder with a tougher schedule than we did. We finished at Oregon, which, uh, you know, playing for what they were playing for at the time, they needed to beat us and UCLA to give themselves a chance to make the tournament. So we played a really desperate and hungry Oregon team on the road game that was one of the better attended games for any of our games since we've been here against how the guys played that game. We turned around, played Arizona at home, you know, on a Tuesday, a couple of days after, obviously didn't play as well, but credit Arizona, they're really good, talented, as, as talented, in my opinion, as anybody and as battle tested as anybody at this point. And then finished at UCLA on the road, uh, the last game of the regular season, you know, at the time had beaten them five straight and, you know, going to an environment that was really hostile and was going to be just tough for a lot of teams to win that game. And so our last three regular season games were as good as anyone. Bounce back, played Washington, which is probably one of the all-time ugliest wins ever. <laughs> um, you know, that's not up for debate. I think that's that's probably fact. But we found a way and then, you know, turned around and had UCLA. So I say all that to say we, we've, you know, our last five games have been tough. So we feel like we've been tested. And our schedule provided us an opportunity really to get ready for March. You know, with this time of the year comes renewed energy. Um, the season can be a long season. It can be a grind for everybody. Um, you can see your players seeing that at times. Freshmen, you know, they hit a wall around this time of the year. This is a, a longer season than what they're used to. Upperclassmen who are used to playing in the Elite Eight or making runs like our class has, you know, They've had now two consecutive longer years, I should say. So that starts to kind of run together. But the tournament comes and there's renewed energy. And I thought we saw that in practice. We had really good energy the last two days in practice heading out here. You know, there's enthusiasm. How can you not be excited this time of the year um, in the tournament? So we had two good practices that I thought reflected that. You know, new team who we're not as familiar with. I think also you go through the Pac-12 schedule. We've played UCLA three times. Players on twice, but we've seen each other play 20 something times. I mean, you watch them all year long, you know what I mean? So tendencies are different. We got to get used to a new team and a new scout. And, and so our attention was pretty good too, but our energy was there. And I think that's the first part of it. Um, just being enthusiastic for what we have ahead of us and now flipping that and also being as attentive mentally as we can, as we get prepared for Friday. Yeah. When you play those tough opponents at the end of the season, what do you think you learned about this squad and what you guys needed to work on, you know, in this week leading up when you hope to get that renewed energy and, you know, that renewed vigor as you go into the tournament? Yeah. You know, we um, defensively against UCLA, we weren't bad um, that last game of the year, but we could have cleaned some things up. And I think the guys saw where we, we probably could have been better um, from just what we do. Um, you know, obviously the first game of the tournament, we had way too many turnovers. You're not beating hardly anybody with 23 turnovers. We were lucky to escape that. But as you get into March, you're just not winning with 23 turnovers. Um, so we got to be better offensively. I think that was also kind of the theme against UCLA in the tournament. We just got to be better offensively, sharing the ball, passing, playing harder, playing together. And so that was something we really tried to focus on. And then cleaning up what we can be better at defensively. Um, and not shooting ourselves in the foot with some of our own mistakes as we go into this time of the year. Yeah, obviously turnovers have been a big issue for you guys. Recently you had double-digit turnovers in nine straight games before that loss to UCLA in the Pac-12 tournament. 23 turnovers, obviously, like you said, you're not going to win. Wyoming can attest to that from last night. If you turn the ball over, you can't win in March. So how do you prepare a team? How many did they end up with? I'm not sure how many I mean, they end up with. but uh, 23, yeah. Well, I was a 23. I know their, their top two players had like 15 of them, uh, you know, so you know, when, when your top guys turn the ball over, it makes it even more difficult. 
So how do you prepare a team to take care of the basketball better? It's not like you get up more shots and try to fix something there. You know, what, what do you have to work on in practice to, to be able to refocus in that area? Yeah, it's a tough one because ultimately your guys have to make decisions, right? Like it's, you know, a lot of it, it's hard to do as a coach to limit turnovers. You know, we showed the guys their turnovers the last couple of games. So hopefully they see them. You know, there's probably times where maybe we can control the offense a little more. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to come down to our guys making good decisions. We try to show them what it was, playing under control, playing under balance, how we started off the last couple of days of practice in terms of getting in the paint, playing on two, jump stopping, you know, just trying to be as under control as possible. So that's a huge emphasis for us this week. And obviously, as you move forward in March, we got to do a better job of that. But ultimately, it will come down to our guys. We try to show them the mistakes and hopefully mentally they can learn from that. And the experience of what we did, you know, the last couple of weeks or even three weeks, four weeks, the latter part of the season. Now, hopefully that experience and the mistakes we made, hopefully we can counter that with having gone through that and now in real time being able to handle that better. The other area where I think you guys have lacked at the end of the season, now part of it is you're playing really good opponents, but that's the opponents you're going to be facing the rest of the season anyways. But how do you guys get back on track defensively? You allowed four of your last six opponents to shoot better than 45%. Obviously, when you guys are good, you're holding opponents under 40%. You did that so well the beginning of the season. How do you fix that? Are there areas where you feel like you guys have made some improvements, that you saw some deficiencies that you were able to correct this week? What What's the key on defense to, to getting back to that lockdown defense, which was part of the reason why you guys were able to make that Elite Eight run last year was because of how well you guys played defensively? Yeah, I think it goes hand-in-hand hand too, Shotgun. you got to have good offense helps defense, right? Good offense helps, helps you defensively. It allows you to get set. It allows you to – you know, better match up with the team. And I think it starts with that because transition defense is also somewhere where we have not been good at, especially in the latter part of the year. So I think it starts with good offense. And I think if we can get back and get set, we can be pretty good at what we do. You know, the, the last part of it, we just got to be more locked in in terms of what guys do, what they don't do. I think we got to fly around and cover for each other a little bit better. And it's just got to, we got to be really good in the team concept, you know, individually guys are going to get going but when guys get beat someone's got to be there to help them and then someone's got to cover for them so I think we can be better in terms of helping each other out covering for each other knowing what each team and what their personnel does and what their strengths or weaknesses are but ultimately covering up for each other and just continue to fly around the court challenging every shot and limiting each team to one possession yeah, that was something we saw last year in the tournament run is, you know, sometimes the defense, you guys went to that zone sometimes, guys would be out of place, but there was always someone contesting a shot. And, uh, you know, you talked about the other coaches, the opposing coaches talked about how your guys' zone at that time was stretched so far across the court with the length that you guys have. When you're preparing in, in a tournament environment where you may have one day to, to get ready for an opponent, how difficult – is it to, to be prepared for what an, an opposition throws at you uh, and how different they may be from what you've seen during the season? Yeah, it, it is. And, and you're, you lack familiarity with all these teams too, right? So now you may have a one-day prep. Luckily, we have more time with Miami. You know, but going back to last year, you, you beat Drake on a – I don't even remember what day we played on, Thursday, Friday, and then you got one day and you moved to Kansas. And – you know, but a lot of what you do is going to fall on your foundations, your foundation defensively, your foundations offensively, and that's what you got to rely on. And that's why you got to continue to get better throughout the year because plays break down. You got to rely on your spacing and some of the foundations offensively that you've talked about. 
you get beat, you have to rely on, on defense. Now you got to rely on a lot of the foundations that you've been building up throughout the course of a year. So, you know, your foundations get tested as you do that or as you play late and you only have one day to prep for people. But that's why you practice year round. That's why you play 30 plus games because you should be getting better this time of the year and really at peak. If you're not, you know, uh, as familiar with the team or you only have one day to scout them, so be it. But now your foundations of what you've built all year should really be at its peak and, and be able to handle for where you lack in terms of a scout. Looking forward to the scout on Miami. This it seems like a very intriguing matchup. You guys have one of the tallest teams. They have one of the shorter teams. You guys have turned the ball over, especially recently, a lot. They thrive on turnovers. So looking at the the matchup, what stands out to you about Miami? What's the key for you guys to be victorious in this matchup? Yeah, I think everything you just said, um, They uh, for SC fans out there, very similar to Oregon, in my opinion, kind of guard-oriented, can put a lot of pressure on you off the dribble, spread you out. You know, so it's kind of a contrast of styles in terms of that. I thought the first time we played Oregon this year, you know, they got the best of us with that. The second time we played them, you know, I thought we did a much better job of guarding our yard and we were really locked into what we were doing and we mixed it up and played a little more zone. Uh, But I think Miami from an offensive standpoint is very similar to that. They have three guards who can really spread you out, who can really drive the ball, who can make shots and really get it going. And then where they're different from Oregon is Oregon played one true center out there. Well, Miami's five man is really a stretch four playing five. He plays on the perimeter. He doesn't post up. Very capable shot maker, can drive as well. So he puts pressure on the defense in other ways. So we got to be able to guard our yard, keep them in front of us, keep them out of transition. It goes back to starting with good offense. I think kind of what you and I talked about earlier, the better we move the ball and the better possessions we get, it will help our defense out. And taking care of the basketball, getting up good shots, and just trying to get as matched up and as set as we can defensively would be huge. You know, because they are guard-oriented, they get out, they try to pressure you a little bit, they try to make life tough on you, speed you up, and so we got to be able to handle their pressure um, and still make sound decisions against that and take care of the ball and get good possessions and good shots out of that. One of the interesting matchups, I think, is, you know, when you guys have played some of the, the bigger teams, you've struggled a little bit down low, whereas, you know, when you played – Teams that don't have great height down low, both Isaiah Mobley and Chavez Goodwin have been able to feast down there. And Chavez, very interesting, obviously playing a homecoming game, going back to South Carolina. Sure, he's going to have a pretty big contingent out there. He's taken a huge jump in his game from last year as he became more of a featured option after coming off the bench last season. What have you seen from him to enable him to have the success that he's had this year? And then what has he meant to this team as a six-year senior, a guy who came back, an older guy, you know, that veteran leadership that he's provided? Yeah, I mean, he uh, we made him captain midway through the year just because he possesses all the qualities of a captain. I mean, you know, take away his production this year, but rock-solid person, great kid, hard worker, as hard as any worker we've had, um, big-time work ethic, accountable, coachable. You know, any superlative or adjective you could think of of naming a kid, you know, uh, Chavez possesses it. And um, unbelievable teammate, uh, leads by example. And so all that just in terms of, you know, whether he was a six-year, fifth-year, fourth-year, just what he provides in terms of who he is is important, not just for us, but any college basketball team. I'm sure there's 100 coaches out there who would, who would you know, want someone, uh, a person of that caliber on their team. And so Chavez is just a high-caliber person. You know, in terms of his production, man, he's he's what he has really good touch around the basket. He can finish right hand, left hand, doesn't have the best size, but has the athleticism to make up for that. 
rugged, very rugged, hard playing, high motor, you know, so any deficiencies he may have from a lack of size, man, he makes up for with heart and just how hard he plays. And um, you can never have enough of that. I think he compliments Isaiah Mobley well, the way Isaiah can kind of stretch the floor and pass it. Isaiah or Chavez can finish down low, catch, finish, finish either hand and, and uh, you know, kind of play in that gray area when people drive and kind of kick to him and be able to finish around that area. So high caliber dude who works hard and all the success um, that he's had this year, he's worked for it and he's definitely earned it. One of the strengths and the weaknesses of this team is you've had Chavez, you've had Isaiah, you've had Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson, four guys that have scored over double figures. But those guys can go off on any night, but you haven't necessarily got those guys being consistent at the same time. So how do you get your four top players all playing their best basketball at the same time here in the most important part of the season? Yeah, I just think that just playing together as a team, taking what the defense gives them being ready to move the ball and just kind of pass it. And, you know, all of them get, I think, their share of touches throughout the course of a game. But it's just kind of taking what the defense gives them. Obviously, guys got to step up um, and make shots. So the answer to say, how do we get all four of them going, I think is one, just them two, them four playing well together where the ball's being shared enough where all of them still get their touches. And two, you just got to make it. That's where your work comes into play, you know, working on what you need to, getting game reps up throughout the week, um, I thought all those guys have come in and got an extra work in this week. So they're prepared to go from the shots they're going to get in the game. So I, I just think that's the biggest thing we're going to try as coaches, we're going to try to get them all going through play calls and running offense at certain times for them and trying to get certain mismatch or matches for them. Um, and now it's up to them to make it. And then, you know, taking what the defense gives you, if you're Isaiah Mobley and you're getting doubled, you need to kick it out and Boogie's got to be ready to make a shot. And if they, rotate on boogie, then you got to make that extra pass to Drew and he's got to be ready to make a play. And that might be dumping it down to Chavez. And so they're all helping each other kind of play the best basketball they can and get in a rhythm. And I think that's going to be key. We got to play together. We got to share the ball. We got to get each other going. We got to make the game easier for each other. And when the game is going really well for you guys, when the game is easy, it seems like Drew Peterson's a big part of that. He's a guy that I know you've got special interest in. You're, you're on him, riding him pretty hard during practice, and he jokes about that. Is there a key to getting the aggressive but not over-aggressive Drew Peterson? Because when he's playing his, his best basketball, I think, is when the team is playing his best basketball. Well, he says I get on him hard, and I do get on <laughs> Drew, but I also see a lot of potential in Drew, too. And, um, you know, Drew's got a special skill set. And he's a good young man. He's a good kid. You know, why shouldn't he be an all-conference defender? Why shouldn't he be much better defensively? Why shouldn't he average five assists a game? Why can't he lead the Pac-12 and assist? You know what I mean? That's how I look at it. I just think I, I think the world of him, I think he's got a ton of potential that is still untapped. And that's what, you know, we're trying to get out of him. And, you know, as it relates to him and I, specifically, I'm trying to get out of him. I, I think – you know, Drew is best basketball is still ahead of him, even though he's had, you know, good accomplishments thus far in his career. But you're right. When we're at our best, Drew's playing well. And it's not just scoring. Obviously, he's scoring. He scored against Oregon. He scored against Arizona or uh, UCLA. But he also had five or six assists in those games. He got other people's shots. He made the game easier for other people. And I think that's also a, a trait that he has that, you know, you, can, you can't always control whether you make or miss shots. Um, you know, we hope he makes shots every day, but we know that's not always going to be the case. But what you can always do is make the game easier for people. You can decide, hey, I'm going to make this play. I'm going to make this play. You know, and, and, and that's a skill set I think he has. And I think 
He's averaged over three assists a game for us, but I think he can lead the Pac-12 in assists. I really do. So I think I just think that's where he can also take a jump in terms of his consistently making the game easier for other players. But, you know, he, you're right. He, he's got to be good for us, and um, I think he will. You know, he's always played his best against good opponents, and so I don't see why this would be any different. I thought he was pretty good for us in our March run last year. Might not have always been our leading scorer, but I thought he was solid in, in what he did, his approach, you know, creating, passing, rebounding. He's such a good rebounder, too. Um, so he just impacts the game in so many ways, and he he should be one of the better players in our league. He should have a chance to play in the NBA. He should be able to everything he wants to put his mind to from a basketball standpoint. He should be able to do. Well, get him fueled up on his coffee, and he should be good good to go for this uh, NCAA tournament run. You guys, he he and Chavez, Boogie Ellis, all guys from the transfer portal that you guys have brought in. I thought you guys have done a tremendous job with the way you've constructed the roster, going out and getting high profile uh, high school recruits bringing in the timely transfers as well. And you guys have been rewarded as a staff, I guess you would say, as Andy gets rewarded uh, with a contract extension. What do you think that contract extension for Andy Enfield says about the state of the program? You know, I think it says the state of the program is in good hands, and it is in good hands. And we are appreciative of Mike and Brandon and the rest of the administration for believing in Andy and subsequently us. Um, but where the program's at, the program's very healthy right now. The program's in a very good spot. We have great kids. We have talented basketball players. We have good students. Um, nobody's getting in trouble. Everybody's graduating. Guys are going to the NBA. Guys are representing USC um, the right way, and we're winning games along the way. So the program's in good hands. The state of the program's at a really good spot. We're trying to keep it going. You know, another good run in March would, would really help with that as well in terms of recruiting. Winning never hurts. Um, so hopefully we can string together some games and make another run. And that will only help in terms of recruiting and trying to keep this program going. And, um, you know, we've we've been fortunate enough to recruit really good kids who allowed us to coach them, you know, who responded well. They care. Their care factor is high. You know, we're just happy to be here and keep this thing going. And hopefully we, we're knocking on the door. We're knocking on the door of, of national relevancy um, and trying to make that next step. We made an elite eight. You know, fi the final four is kind of the next step. It's not easy to do, but we're knocking on it. And we want to, you know, hopefully we can continue to string good teams and good programs together or good good teams together, continue to get good players. And, you know, you never know when the pieces fit. You always bring a team together. Every team does. And you hope, you know, you feel good about your talent or else you wouldn't have tried to sign them. You feel good about your team, but you never know how the pieces are going to fit. We've been able to make the pieces fit all the time. Sometimes they fit better than others, but you never know when it's really going to click and you get, bam, you get that team. And so we're just going to continue to recruit, you know, good kids, try to find a balance out of the portal, high school kids, transfers, build continuity within our program and, and continue to make the pieces fit till we make the final four one day. You mentioned a lot of things that go on behind the scenes as, as a coaching staff. I'm, I'm curious, how different have your responsibilities been this year as you kind of move up one spot on the bench? You know, Jason Hart goes and coaches the G League at night, gets an opportunity to be a head coach and takes that. You get uh, bumped up to being the associate head coach. Uh, how different have your responsibilities been on a day-to-day -day basis and just kind of in a, you know, a larger sense, you know, now as you're the, the right-hand man now to Andy? Honestly, shotgun, they haven't changed at all. And that's not a, a knock on anybody. It's a testament more to Andy and what he allows for his assistants. I'm not doing more as the associate head coach as I was as an assistant coach. You know, Eric's not doing any less now because I'm the associate head coach. Andy has empowered all his assistants 
Um, and we all had a voice. We all get together as a staff. We game plan together. We've always done one third of the scouts, no matter who the associate head coach has been or who the assistant coach has been. So we've always divvied those up equally. And that's, again, a testament to Andy. He's never given me more because I wasn't the associate head coach when Hart was. Or now because I'm the associate head coach, I don't have more scouts than, you know, Eric or Jay. So he's always divvied up responsibilities throughout the program equally. So moving to associate head coach really isn't much of a transition because I've been doing the same thing as an assistant coach. And that's a testament to Andy that he empowers all his assistants to be coaches, to grow, to have a voice, um, and just be involved in the program from a day-to-day standpoint. You know what I mean? So I'm fortunate to him that he allows us to be like that. And in the, in the meantime, or in the, in the process of that, he allows you to prepare to be a head coach. You know what I mean? Because of that, because he gives you so much autonomy, he gives you so much responsibility that you're basically involved in every aspect of the program. So, you know, I wish I had a better answer for you, but honestly, nothing has changed for me. Everything's really been the same. Well, that might've been the same, but there has been one drastic change for you uh, in the last year. You became a first time dad. You know, how has that changed your perspective as a coach? You know, you and Isaiah White can trade father stories (laughs) right now going back and forth. Obviously both of you have absolutely gorgeous little, little girls. How has that changed your perspective as a coach? And what's been the biggest challenge, I guess, uh, when you, when you become a first time dad and you're dealing with the the lack of sleep and all those type things while you're still, you know, taking care of your responsibilities as a, as a basketball coach. I, I, I can't even relate to Isaiah White. He's got two kids. So I can't <laughs> imagine. And he's uh, shoot, probably 14, 13 years younger than me. So I can't even imagine. So what he does and the maturity of him, is unbelievable. So I look up to him, honestly, just in how he handles himself. And it just, you know, like sometimes I'm tired. You, you go through this, you know, I'm not the first coach with a baby. So obviously people have figured this out before. And so you just make it happen. Right. So like anything I'm doing is not unprecedented. You know, I am more tired. Um, you know, finding balance has been tough before when it was just me and my wife or just me. When I first started my career, I went recruiting when I wanted, I did this when I wanted, you know, I'd stay in the office for no reason other than I just had nothing else to do. You know, now we finish practice. We put my daughter down around 7, 730. I'm trying to rush home just so I get an hour with her. You know what I mean? And so finding that balance is tough. But at the same time, you have your kids who you got to build a relationship with. You got you to gotta be there for it. And, and there's no better way to do it than just spending time and just being around. You know what I mean? So finding the balance has been the most difficult part of it for me because, like I said before, I used to just hang around the gym for no other reason. I just, I didn't have to be home. So, you know, and, and with that, I'm, I'm sitting there talking to players for 35, 40 minutes after practice about nothing because I didn't have to get out of there. So now we finished practice, maybe five o'clock. I'm trying to jet out just so I can get home and spend some time with my daughter. So, you know, that changes the dynamics a little bit, getting in the gym, still getting extra working with the guys, but yet still trying to, you know, spend time with your family is definitely a challenge. And, you know, I'm, I just happen to be a coach, but I'm sure any any father, any mother goes through that, you know, with their line of work or whatever balance you're trying to find. And so that's been the, the toughest part um, in terms of like coaching perspective. You know, I think I think the thing our program can look at and we take pride in it is that our kids have had a good experience for the most part. We've never really had exodus in terms of like six guys leaving because they were unhappy that you'll see in some other places or seven guys or even five. We've lost guys to the league. We have lost guys to transfer, but I think they've always transferred because, you know, they just weren't playing. And that's just the reality of basketball at this time or just, you know, college athletics at this time, day and age is that 
people want to play earlier. They have no patience for sitting around. And you're basically on the clock whenever you bring people in that if they don't reach in their mind what they think their goals are, that they're probably going to leave. And so we've had guys leave because they didn't get the playing time or opportunity that, that they thought they should get. You know, but for the most part, we've never had a bunch of people leave because how they've been treated. And we treat our guys with respect. Yeah, we coach them, but we don't call them out of their name. We don't we aren't disrespectful to them with how we talk to them. And I think with that, it, it, it builds their experience. I think through coaching and they still know they have a good time. and They're still happy with their situation. You know, I'm saying that right now as a father of a baby. I mean, but, you know, hopefully if my daughter does decide to play, you know, someone coaches them, I'm fine with that. As long as they're respectful to them. You know what I mean? I think you can do both. I think you can coach them and still be respectful of who they are and not, you know, call them a bad name or something like that. And, and to me, that's fine. You know, probably if there's any perspective that changes, the losses probably don't hit as hard. I still hate losing. Uh, but now I go home, I see my daughter and there's probably things that are more important than losing sometimes, but you know, how, how we treat, how we treat our kids. You know, I just would want someone to respect my daughter. I feel like we do that. I think the results are there and that's really the biggest thing. And I think, you know, when you can stay in the gym and build relationships with your kids, it allows you to coach them, but they also know where you're coming from with that. I think that's important. But in terms of that change, yeah, that's been the biggest thing. I think it's just trying to find a balance in terms of spending time with our guys and still spending time with my family and seeing them and, and making them a priority as well. Well, since we mentioned Isaiah White, I know a lot of USC fans want to know what's the status on Isaiah White, what's the status on Restix and Waters, two guys that have been injured at the end of the season and obviously can be big rotation guys for you. We saw what Isaiah White did last year in the NCAA tournament when he's healthy and when he can make a couple of shots can change the dynamic of a game for you really quick. And Restix and Waters has been one of your most valuable guys coming off the bench all season. Yeah, Isaiah was great for us last year and he's taken a He's just had a hard year, honestly. And another child, the academic uh, component of him trying to finish his master's degree at USC. And uh, just some injuries here and there that he's had to deal with. It's just made for a tough season for him. And it's culminated with, you know, he was, we thought he was finally turning the corner against Washington State. He was playing much better. And, you know, he sprains his wrist. It's held him out. He practiced one day before. We leave for uh, Vegas. He practiced the day before. It was his first practice in weeks. You know, we play Washington. The next day, we give him a few minutes against UCLA, and it kind of re-aggravated it. So he didn't practice on Monday. Got back to it a little bit, but nothing hard. We do anticipate him being able to suit up and go, but his practice has been limited. And then, you know, same with Reese. Reese has gotten better throughout the year, and he's been a very important part of what we do. And, you know, you look at some of the better teams in the country, there's not a lot of freshmen playing for them. You know, shows what Reese has done and, you know, the ability that he has and that he possesses that he's been a big part of a rotation as a freshman. This is he was here last year, but this is his real freshman year right now. And so, uh, you know, it speaks to his work ethic and his ability and his talent to be able to come in here and impact games. And he's really helped us win games. He hurt his groin. I thought that was a big loss for us against UCLA because it's one more shooter. It's one more offensive guy. He's also proven that he can guard for us. Um, and so I thought that was a big loss for us. And he's been gradually getting back to things. He's another one. We do anticipate him playing on Friday. You know, he's got to get his condition back going and now try to get his rhythm back going a little bit. But we anticipate both of them being there on Friday. Things can change, obviously. Who knows? Maybe they tweak something. You never know what's going to happen. But as of right now, we anticipate both of them being back on Friday. 
Well, hopefully you guys have a full complement of players, and we look forward to seeing what you guys can do in this March tournament uh, like you did last year, if you guys can make another run. I'll see you guys on Friday down in Greenville. Cap, thanks so much for taking the time to, to jump on and join us. Awesome. Thanks, Shotgun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We appreciate Coach Capco jumping on with us to talk about the Miami-USC matchup and what the Trojans have been doing, but let's take a little bit deeper dive. It's a very intriguing matchup when you look at these two teams and one that's going to be determined by who can impose their will. They're just they're very different. USC is a team that has is one of the tallest in the nation that thrives on offensive rebounds. That can get you know dominates in one of the top 10, 15 teams on total rebounds per game. Whereas Miami is a team that struggles. They're one of the worst 10 teams in the country in total rebounds per game. So USC has a definite advantage there. But can they take advantage of it? That will be the big question because. USC has had a real bugaboo with turnovers, and Miami loves to turn teams over and try to create some transition baskets. So it'll come down to whichever team can really impose their will. You know, USC is going to have a two true big man. Isaiah Mobley obviously can be a stretch four, but two guys that can play down in the post, whereas Miami is going to have a five-out lineup. Their five, Sam Wardenberg, likes to move out to the perimeter and shoot threes. So how can USC match up with this? And I thought it was really interesting that Chris Capco brought up Oregon. You know, this Miami team reminds me a little bit more of the Oregon team of last year rather than this year, you know, when Dante returns from his injury, because last year they really gave teams trouble because there were four or five guys from 6'5 to 6'8, and just, you know, they would get teams on pick and rolls and switches, and they would always be able to find a mismatch. But they really struggled with USC because Evan Mobley and Isaiah Mobley could guard one through five. So it didn't matter who they were able to get that switch on. They were still able to guard them, whether it was Chris, Chris Duarte or Eugene Omarui. USC was able to defend those guys. So how can USC this year without Evan Mobley? Are they going to be able to defend the five-out perimeter look that Miami's going to present? I think that'll be a really interesting matchup. Expect USC to maybe throw some zone in there. We saw that in the NCAA tournament last year. We saw that against Oregon at times. We saw that against Oregon earlier in the season as well, is to throw the zone out there that, that allows Chavez Goodwin to stay on the, on the court and be able to use him on the offensive end and protect him a little bit on the defensive end so he's not chasing guys on the wings, you know, and some pick and roll situations and some switches. So expect that to be something that USC maybe tries to implement a little bit and something that really worked well for them last year when they got into the NCAA tournament against teams that hadn't really seen their length and hadn't really seen what the Trojans could do uh, rather than, you know, the Pac-12 teams that USC's facing are a little bit more comfortable with that. So I think that's going to be an interesting matchup. And I think that, you know, how USC handles the defensive matchup with Chavez Goodwin 
to be able to keep him on the court because I think he could dominate in this game. And I think him playing at home in front of, you know, front of family and friends in South Carolina, just 30 or 40 minutes away from where he, you know, where he transferred from Wofford college in, in South Carolina. I think he's going to have a great a cheering section there. And I think he's going to want to prove something in this game. So we saw earlier in the season when he had an opportunity, first time his dad was seeing him play in the, in the Galen center, he went out and had a monster performance against Oregon State, I think it was. Really pushed them to a victory, really dominated down low, and I think that's something he can do against Miami if USC can keep him on the floor and not necessarily have to go to that four-guard, one-big lineup with Isaiah Mobley playing the five, which is something they've done a little bit more in the later half of the season. Another interesting element of this is experience because USC, you know, they have tournament experience. You know, the guys went on the Elite Eight run last year. You know, almost everyone on the team uh, returned. Obviously, they lose Evan Mobley, lose Tajidi, but they've replaced them. You've seen some of those young guys, Reesticks and Waters, Kobe Johnson, step up. Now, they don't have much tournament experience, but the rest of the roster does. But they're facing a team that has three six-year players in the starting lineup. You know, three super seniors. Now, USC has two of those guys in Chavez Goodwin and Isaiah White. They both have tournament experience as well, but Isaiah White, we'll see how much he can play. So how has that experience really manifested itself for the Hurricanes this year? Well, I think you can see it in their turnover numbers. You know, their assist to turnover ratio, their top 20 in the nation in that, their turnover margin in their top 20. And that all goes back to Charlie Moore. And this is a name USC fans might recognize. The five foot eleven point guard began his career at Cal, and USC played him a couple times when he was there at Cal. Quanzo uh, Martin was still the coach there. He transferred to Kansas. Then he transferred to DePaul. Now he's at Miami. Six-year senior. He's on his fourth different school, but he's really found a home this year with the Hurricanes. What he's brought to Jim Laranega's squad is that veteran leadership, that true point guard mentality where he slows things down. He doesn't let them get too sped up. And that's something USC's actually really missed this year, not having that true point guard. Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson have done a nice job. Isaiah Mobley as well, you know, being a primary ball handler at times, but they haven't had that true pass-first point guard, and I think it's really affected them because those guys want to score. All three of those guys want to score. They want to be on the wing. They want to be set up for a good look, but creating for everyone else isn't always what they're good at. So I think that's what Charlie Moore has really brought to this team. He's really changed things. He's helped a player like Cameron McGusty is a player to definitely watch for Miami. He's an all ACC first team player. He's really stepped up his game this year. He's uh, you know, he's 24 years old. He just, he tested the waters last year, similar to Isaiah Mobley decided to come back and has really benefited from it. And Miami's really benefited from, from him being on the team. His, his numbers are, have been outstanding. I think he's averaging around 17 points a game, real big, bump up from last season but I think a lot of it has to do with Charlie Moore being there taking some of the pressure off being able to get the offense in good sets knowing to call the right play to know when to get McGusty the ball so you know that's something USC doesn't have you know they don't have that true point guard to slow things down or speed the game up to determine the tempo which Miami does so who determines the tempo in this game that could be a big factor in this one as well so the tournament experience USC has, will that manifest itself or will it be the older players and the ability of a veteran point guard like Charlie Moore really decide this game? Because Miami, you know, they haven't had any tournament experience at all in this roster outside of one or two of the transfers because they haven't been very good the last three years. You know, they're coming off a, a year where they went 10 and 17. It's been a complete turnaround. And a big part of that has been the ability to take care of the basketball better and create turnovers. They're 
forcing over 13 turnovers per game, almost 14. They turn the ball over less than 10, so they have one of the top – they're 11th in the nation coming into the NCAA tournament in turnover margin. So that's been the big difference for them. Now let's look at the X factors in this game. How can Miami pull off, the, off that 7-10 upset? How can USC take control of a game? I think the X factor for USC is on the wings. Those two six foot nine guards that they have in Max Agbonpolo and Drew Peterson. If both of those guys lock down, if you can lock down McGusty, force him into some tough shots, you know, if you can keep their offense from getting going on the outside, then I think it makes it that much more tougher for Miami. If you can force them to drive into the bigs, force them to do things they don't want to. And that's the same thing that Miami's going to try to do on the other side. So the X factor for Miami. It comes back to the turnovers. How many can they create and what can they do with them? Because USC at times this season has turned the ball over 12, 15 times, and it hasn't hurt them because their defense has been so good. Can Miami, the X factor for me, for them, is can they get into transition off those turnovers? Can they create live ball turnovers, not just a ball that, hey, you're battling for a rebound, an offensive rebound, it goes out of bounds, it goes to the opposition. Can it be something where they get a steal out in the front court and it goes to create a fast break opportunity or even a three on the wing, you know, something like that where it can create points in a hurry. That's going to be the X factor for Miami. Now, both these teams have played a number of close games. So it feels only natural. This one's going to come down to the wire. Both teams have been pretty successful in those close games. So what's going to be the decider late? Well, it comes down to execution. And I think when you look at it, Miami probably has an advantage there with the older point guard and Charlie Moore, but USC has guys that are tough shot makers. Drew Peterson has made a number of them. He made the halftime buzzer beater against UCLA in the Pac-12 tournament. He's made, you know, the, the big shot at Oregon State. You know, they have been able to make some big shots down the stretch. USC made some big shots. At, excuse me, he made a big one at Oregon. They've been able to hit those big time shots that are difficult shots late in games. So you know, USC, maybe they have a little bit of advantage there. But I think it's going to be a tough one. It's going to come down to the end. And it comes down to the head coaching matchup, which is very interesting. It's an intriguing matchup. You look at it, both Andy Enfield and Jim Laranega from Miami led historic underdog runs in the NCAA tournament. Laranega took the 11th seed of George Mason to the Final Four. And then a few years later, Enfield takes the first 15 seed to the Sweet 16 with Florida Gulf Coast. They're both obviously in different situations now. So can't one of these two teams go on a run? Can one of these coaches lead their team uh, on a run, not just on Friday to a win, but then potentially to a Sweet 16? Both these teams are capable of giving Auburn fits because Auburn doesn't have the most experienced guard play. They turn the ball over a little bit too much. They get a little rushed. They don't get the ball enough to Jabari Smith, their NBA top three NBA pick at times. So it's an opportunity if you, if, one of these teams gets into a fight with my aunt, with Auburn and they can take care of Jabari Smith down low, you know, then there's an opportunity that one of these two teams could be going to the Sweet 16. I don't see it as, a, you know, there would be a giant upset for one of these to take down Auburn because Auburn hasn't been playing great coming into the, the NCAA tournament. So it'll be interesting to see who wins this game and can they put together something for Auburn on Saturday or on Sunday, excuse me, because that's who I figure – the winner of this game will be facing considering Jacksonville State didn't even win their conference tournament and got in because of Bellarmine not being NCAA eligible right now because of their transition from D2 to D1, which is really dumb to begin with. That's neither here nor there. 
Jacksonville State versus Auburn. Big Auburn comes out in that. But then can Miami or USC give the Tigers a problems? The Tigers will have the home foot advantage. They should have a, a good number of fans traveling from Auburn across the state of Georgia to South Carolina, whereas Miami, pretty good ways away. USC, obviously, a long ways away. So on the USC side, what does USC have to do to make sure they're the ones playing Auburn? Well, we talked about it. You know, they have to take care of the ball. Don't turn the ball over. But they have to really attack the glass. Isaiah Mobley is going to be huge in this. His ability to get down and battle down low. There's been times where he and decides to sit on the perimeter a little bit. You know, on the offensive end, USC needs him down in the post in this game. They need him to be banging and busting the chops of the Miami front line to be able to him and Chavez Goodwin be able to take advantage of the size that USC has and Miami struggles with rebounding the bottle. Net goes for Drew Peterson as well. He's a great rebounder. It's a great opportunity for him with his six foot nine size to really attack in this game. And when USC's at their best, Drew Peterson's playing his best. Mentioned that in the Chris Capco interview. So that's what they need. They need him to be going. And that doesn't mean he has to score 27 points like he did against UCLA. That means he needs to be active. He needs to be attacking. He needs to be aggressive, but not over-aggressive. And by that, I mean, don't leave your feet and try to pass the ball and create some turnovers that lead to runouts going the other way. Be able to get downhill, attack, and know what you want to do with the basketball. And if a team like Washington did, really over-rotated to that help side, know that, that there's another uh, where your third asset is on the offensive end, where it's not just the dump down to Chavez going, okay, where's that three-point shooter on the wing on the opposite side? Know where that guy's at and be able to feed him instead of the couple of turnovers that he had in that Washington game where he tried to do a little too much getting in the air and not being able to get the ball to Chavez going. So in the end, what is this game going to come down to? It's going to be the turnover. It's going to be the rebound and who can enforce their will in the other team. But it's going to come down to the stars, I think, in this one. Is it going to be Drew Peterson, Isaiah Mobley? You know, USC's had those four guys in double figures, and they've all stepped up at different times. Can they all be solid in this game? They don't all need to be great, but they need to have not have two of the guys disappear, whether it be Boogie Ellis, Chavez Goodwin, Isaiah Mobley, Drew Peterson. If they can get – all of those guys contributing in different ways. I think that they can you know, win this game against Miami and then create some havoc for Auburn as well. But the same thing goes on the other side. I think the stars on the Miami side, Charlie Moore and uh, Cameron McGusty, I think those two guys are the ones to watch because McGusty can definitely get hot and put up, pour in 25, 30 points in a game. And Charlie Moore can you know, put up 15, 20 himself and then create another five assists or 10 assists uh, in a game with the way that he's able to move the ball and work the lineup. And Sam Wardenberg could be an X factor as well for the Miami Hurricanes because of the way he can shoot the ball from the five position. So who wins that five matchup? Chavez Goodwin versus Wardenberg, I think is a really intriguing matchup. And which of the stars come out and shine in a big-time atmosphere in the NCAA tournament? That's going to be what decides this game, in my opinion. And we'll see how it plays out when the teams match up again at 3.10 p.m. Eastern time and 12:10 Pacific time on True TV. Tip off, uh, you know, will be after the Auburn Jacksonville State game, so we'll see, you know, how long that game runs. But should be a really fun matchup, one of the top matchups across the board in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So a lot of eyes going to be on this one to see if USC can hold on. They're a one and a half point favorite. You know, can they take care of business against the 10 seed Miami?
that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Heard It on the Sidelines podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening, and thanks so much to Chris Capco for jumping on in between trying to get the, the Trojans ready for their first-round matchup with Miami. Make sure you guys like, subscribe, leave a five-star review, all those other things. Let us know your favorite part of the show on the Peristyle message board. We appreciate you all for joining us, and we hope to see you back here in the future. I'm your host, Shotgun Spratling. This has been the Heard on the Sidelines podcast, a part of the Peristyle podcast family. Ripping, 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 ripping